if you decide to never spend money until you're financially independent, you will miss out on some life. Today on the Firelighter Podcast, we have a very special guest. I've literally been listening to him for a few years, at times as a guest on other podcasts, but more frequently on his own podcast, which is called Earn and Invest. Doc G launched that podcast in 2018, and in 2019, he received the Plutus Award for the Best New Personal Finance Podcast. Affectionately known as Doc G, Dr. Jordan Grummet is in fact a real medical doctor. Doc is not here today to discuss his podcast or his blog, each of which are worthy of your time. Jordan has recently completed his first book. We're bringing this newly minted author to the Philadelphia community. His book is titled Taking Stock, a hospice doctor's advice on financial independence, building wealth, and living a regret-free life. With that, I'll hand it off to Jordan to introduce himself. I am Jordan Grummet. I was a practicing physician who was burning out in medicine when I realized that I had enough money to quit. I discovered the Financial Independence Retire Early community, and I could step away from medicine. But as opposed to being excited about that, I felt quite anxious because I had spent all this time identifying as a doctor. I didn't know who I was. So I started writing a blog about personal finance, eventually started a podcast called Earn and Invest, where we discuss the personal finance 201. So not the 101, how do I get financially independent? How do I do a Roth IRA? How do I save? Those kind of things I think have been covered so well elsewhere. Earn and Invest was all about the 201. And in this process of interviewing people, as well as cutting out the parts of work I didn't like, it left me with being a hospice doctor for very part-time, but I dealt with people who were terminally ill and the dying, and I realized that people who are dying had a lot to say that was also important to that question I was trying to answer with my podcast, why do we do what we do with money and how do we do it better? So it led to the writing of this book, Taking Stock, where I kind of discuss both what I learned from the personal finance and financial independence world, as well as the hospice world and taking care of the terminally ill. That's a lot of great content and, and actually real life experiences that you're talking about there. At, at what point did did you kind of have all this material kind of crystallize and you, you kind of felt compelled that you wanted to write a book? I mean, not a lot of, I've, I've literally got uh, a book outlined in my filing cabinet over there, but it is long from being written. How did you get to that point where the balance tilted and you said, I've got to write a book about this. Well, the background is that I've been writing for years before I started writing about personal finance. Back in about 2005, I actually started writing a blog about medicine, what it felt like to be a doctor, what it felt like to be a father, how those worlds intersected. So I've been writing for the internet for years and years. When I transitioned to speaking more of personal finance, I started to write mostly about financial issues, but occasionally doctoring issues 
would really push their way into the conversation. I remember in the beginning of my blogging years as a personal finance blogger, I wrote a post about investing advice from a hospice doctor. And this was part of the bulwark of the thought process that eventually led to the book Taking Stock. I had self-published some books and not really promoted them very much, but I had always wanted to traditionally publish. I had really dropped that idea quite a bit. And I was chatting with a friend of mine, Grant Sabatier, who a lot of people know for writing the book Financial Freedom. And he had been reading my writing for years. And he said, you know what? You have such a unique perspective. We had discussed my experiences in hospice and some of what it had taught me. And he really pushed me. He said, this is something that was important to you in the past. You really have a message that is unique and singular. You now have a bigger platform than you did when you were writing in medicine. Now's the time. And I'm really thankful because he gave me the courage to do something I talk about a lot in the book, to do something that had real meaning and purpose for me, but I was putting it off because it was difficult and painful and scary. And maybe I would write this book and it would be horrible. Maybe I wouldn't get an agent. Maybe I wouldn't get a publisher. Maybe I'd do all those things and then no one would buy it. All those excuses we tell ourselves not to do the things that are important to us. And so I really have to thank Grant for pushing me on this one. Um, and then he later advised me through the whole process. So I'm, I'm very thankful. But I have to admit, he was part of the push that really got me moving on this. Wow. I, I think you, you hit the nail on the head because having read your book now, I really feel like you bring a specific perspective, uh, you know, not just to the, the, as you say, the 101 stuff, but more to the 201 stuff, more to the why, more to the what for. As just a semi-early retiree, I think that key of finding your purpose and, and really figuring out where you can plug in. And I think this is something many early retirees struggle with uh, is I kind of feel like I still have a good run in me. Where can I most benefit and give back with those skills, you know, those gifts. And it's not just running through the door at you. Sometimes you got to have to find the one that fits right. And I think that th that perspective uh, that he saw in you is is a very, very valid one. Hey, let's let's talk a little bit about the title for this book. Uh, Taking stock, you know, kind of seems to have undercurrents and maybe other meanings. You know, can you give us some perspective on, on how you arrived at the title? So originally, I think the title was Before It's Too Late. Um, and we really did some deep thinking. And when I say we, really, I'm talking about myself, my agent, and eventually the book publisher, about how to get this point across that I am an expert in two things, right? I know all about hospice medicine and taking care of the dying, which includes evaluating our life as it gets closer to the end, kind of taking stock of your life. But then I also had built a platform, a podcast, and a blog about investing. And so it had a whole second meaning. So we wanted to find the words that kind of expressed that dual expertise that I had. And taking stock really seemed to put both of those ideas together, as well as cover really what the book is about, which is evaluating wealth and what role it plays in our life and how it adds to meaning and purpose. So I really felt like that general title pulled it all in together. Absolutely. Uh, it's not just about the money piece of the equation. It's a holistic view 
uh, of financial independence and, uh, and, and your purpose in life. And to me, the words taking stock have other, other meetings that are kind of obvious with, in the business world. Uh, a lot of time, it means you're literally taking stock of your inventory. You're taking an account, an assessment of where you stand. Uh, and, and so it really spoke to me. And it means more than just obviously counting things. It's what is the condition of your life? You know, what have you accomplished? Uh, and, and there's some things in here that really prompt uh, the reader to think a little deeper. And I think that's something that uh, you bring to even to your podcast. I, I, you strike me as one of those deeper thinkers. Uh, you're, 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 you seem to be very focused and, and um, analytical. Uh, and you have heavier words sometimes when you speak. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, it's important to me. You know, it's funny I've always wanted to be consistent. Like I've always wanted someone to look at a blog post of mine, listen to a podcast, or in this case, read a book and have that singular voice. So I've always tried to stick to what I feel is more my expertise, which is more of that kind of deeper philosophical thought process. And it was something that at least, it's not that it was completely absent from the personal finance world, but it wasn't the norm. And that's kind of my thought process of creating content of this manner. Right, right. That makes sense. Hey, so let's let me just kind of break down the structure of the book a little bit. Uh, this this book has eight chapters and it's broken into three parts. Part one is what financial independence experts get wrong about life and death. Part two is many paths to financial independence. And part three is the one thing that dying wish they had more of time. Those are the major parts. And then there were a couple other things that I thought were somewhat unique about the book. Each chapter includes these exercises at the end of the chapter for the reader to complete. And, and, and in today's society, the hardest thing is what you usually start with on these exercises is the first step is generally to clear your schedule, turn off your electronic devices. And this is, to me, this is one of the great struggles today uh, in, is to remove the distractions and temptations and be present in the here and the now. Can you talk a little bit about that, that challenge and the mindset that you have for everyone to think about at each chapter? So, you know, it's interesting. I specifically and on purpose use the same step one for each exercise, right? So Pretty much it always says, clear your schedule, set aside some time, find a quiet place, turn your electronics off. And for exactly that reason, I think the world is full of low-hanging fruit. In other words, there are all these distractions which are so easy to get waylaid by. Part of the deeper and harder work of taking stock of your life is actually not to grab those pieces of low-hanging fruit and sit down and think about the way more complex and deeper work that we need to do as human beings. So it was really important for me to start with that beginning step because it's hard. The exercises themselves, I won't say they were an afterthought, but it definitely was the second part of thinking of this manuscript. I'm a fairly philosophical person, and I realized, especially in the beginning of the book, I was really talking way more about philosophical ideas than actually strategies for how to live your life. So I decided to add these exercises in because I wanted my readers to have something tangible to take away from each chapter. So we would start with highly philosophical. We talk about storytelling, what I learned from my own life and the lives of my hospice patients and specifically their last six months. 
But then I wanted to have something that the reader could choose to do or not to do, which would make it specific about their lives and how they could incorporate this philosophical information today. Strangely enough, as I've done more interviews and talked to a more of my pre-readers, the people who got the manuscript before it goes live on August 2nd, I found that they wanted to talk to me about the exercises more than I ever imagined people would be interested in them, just because it wasn't the initial thrust of the book, but I'm finding that other people find them very valuable. I will admit, I I didn't complete all of them, but uh, you can look in the margins of the book and you can see that I spent some time contemplating these because honestly, they were very provoking um, and engaging if you actually turn your phone off and set it aside, and you gave it the full thought. Uh, And I will say it's good to reinforce each of those chapters because I do like the philosophical comments in the book, and and they are engaging. But as I was reading it, I found that the times I enjoyed the book the most is when I had a block of time to really read and digest it and and then look at those exercises at the end of the chapter in that same session while it was fresh in my head. There, there are uh, quite a few thought-provoking sections in this book as well. And we'll talk a little bit more because the stories that you connect to the concepts also really kind of make it clear and, and help people visualize a lot better. Hey, well, the foreword to this book was written by Vicki Robin. Uh, many of the, the listeners may know Vicki Robin. She's certainly mentioned in many financial independence podcasts, uh, the author of Your Money or Your Life. How did you come about asking her to write the foreword for the book? From the beginning, when Grant and I were talking about this book, we really thought that this was going to be a mix of Vicki Robbins' Your Money, Your Life with Bronnie Ware's The Five Regrets of the Dying. So Bronnie Ware is a hospice nurse who wrote about the dying and the things that people regret after her vast experience. And that really encapsulated what I was trying to do is a philosophically financial book, but that touched on the dying and what they regret. I've been lucky enough to interview Vicky a few times in different scenarios, both for my podcast as well as for a Stacking Benjamins event. And then, of course, Grant is good friends with Vicky. So it gave me a lot of opportunity to interact with her. So I had invited her on a panel discussion about a year and a half ago. And after the panel discussion was done, I uh, had everyone else leave and it was just her and and I on Zoom and I talked to her about the project and I said, look, a huge amount of underpinning of this book. And at this time it was really, I had written some of the first drafts, which were horrible, but I hadn't really got to where I am today. And I said, the underpinnings of this book really come from your money, your life. I would be just a pleasure to have you write the forward for it. And Vicky doesn't talk nearly as much about financial independence as she used to. She's definitely more into talking about some of her environmental goals and how to change the world as opposed to how to change your own finances. But because this book was so much more about how we approach life and what's important to us as opposed to strictly, this is how you become financially independent, I think she bought into the idea. So from there, it was a little bit less of a tough sell. And she wrote a wonderful forward. I mean, when I first, when she first sent me the first draft of this forward, I just felt so lucky and privileged to have her look at the book and say such nice things about me. 
I think she did a fantastic job. And and if for nothing else, I imagine some people will buy this book because she wrote a fantastic forward, and that's that's okay with me. Well, you know, to be fair, uh, I read this book. I read the forward first, but I will tell you, I read this book, and I could not imagine anyone other than Vicki Robin writing that forward. They just really fit like a glove. Oh, I, I think she did a fantastic job. I think she captured the book perfectly. I think she captured me and what my goals were. I, I couldn't have asked anyone to do a better job. And so I was just ultra excited about how it came out. One of the things at the end of her forward, she challenges the the standard and what fire stands for, right? Um, she has some other very creative uh, versions of the fire acronym. And I think that Financial independence and this this 201 you're talking about is so much deeper than the surface financial independence retire early movement. Uh, and and this, I, this higher level thought process, I think, is what many of us are hungry for. Uh, I've got a stack of books behind me here, and, and you're absolutely right. I can read all I want to know about the 4% rule or investing or index funds, or I've got Simple Path to Wealth that I've given many copies away, including my family and others. And th- that kind of stuff is blocking and tackling. You got to understand that. You got to know that. Uh, but so much more of these harder issues, the the more human issues, I guess is the right word for it, are tied together in the book. And, and I think that's what gives people a lot to think about. Because I, I agree that from my point of view, you know, as an author, you have unique perspectives uh, and firsthand experiences of people at the end of their life and, and their family members around them. And, and the, the things that really matter or maybe get reconciled at the end, maybe don't get reconciled again. Uh, do, you, do you sometimes find that friends and family around your patients uh, make changes in their lives as a result of realization of the, the definite uh, terminality to life? Well, here's the interesting thing. And we talk about this a little bit in the book. When someone finds out they are terminally ill, it almost is like taking a weight off their shoulders because all of those outside forces that were keeping them from doing what they really wanted in life pursuing their meaning and purpose, leaving the legacy they want. It's like all of a sudden, all those excuses we have, like it's too difficult, I have enough time, there are other things I should focus on, all of those melt away. One of two things happens for people who don't feel like they've reached out and accomplished those things when they find out they're dying. Either they do come to some terms with those things and accomplish what they want, or they don't. If they do come to terms with those things that they want, I call it the deuce ex machina, right? Yeah. What that is, is it's a term that we use often in movies and stories, etc. It's when there's an unexpected plot twist at the end that resolves everything. The problem with what we do, even in hospice now, but what most of us do in our life is the deus ex machina is like a last ditch effort to fix things. I would like to keep people from relying on that. I'd like to start working on meaning, purpose, and legacy way before they're anywhere near their deathbed. So your question is, do families kind of see terminal illness in their loved ones and then make changes? That's my goal, but my goal takes a step even further back with not only families, but then other people who've never experienced death and certainly people who are thinking about financial independence. I'd like to get them to start thinking about these things in their 20s. And in their 30s, when they have the time and space, start figuring out your meaning and purpose 
now and let's start building that life, especially financially, that supports it. I'd like to start that today because I would like every patient to come to me with their terminal diagnosis saying, I can die great now because I've spent the last 20 or 30 years figuring out who I want to be, what do I want to do, what do I want to accomplish. And you know, I tried. I went out and I climbed Mount Everest or failed at it if that was important to me. But but at least I gave it my best shot and I can die knowing that I gave it my best. And so that's the goal. The goal is really to pull this back to the way, way, way younger people who are nowhere near thinking about dying and get them to start doing this stuff and thinking about it today. Yeah, I agree. You know, I have a saying I say to my kids and is if you're not in, you can't win, right? If you're not in the game, you're not going to score. If you're not on the field, you'll never make it to a touchdown. And, And sometimes it's hard to realize that you have to take that step and take that risk and be vulnerable to succeed. But you, you mentioned looking back from, from that patient. One of the things that's uh, really engaged my thought process, you, you talk about this concept in chapter one called a life review. You know, can you talk a little bit about the purpose of a life review and kind of what it is? I've been asked this multiple times, and some people want me to do a life review with them right there on a podcast, which is usually not possible just because it's really, this is a conversation we should really spend hours on. But in hospice, in hospice, often we go and evaluate a patient, and our goal is to take care of their symptoms, to make sure they're comfortable, to make sure they have a place to live and eventually die. But a big part of that is not just physical symptoms but also emotional symptoms. What turmoil exists in their life? How can we help them review their lives and come to some sense of peace with what's happened to them in the past and what's going to happen to them in the future? And so part of that is something called the life review process, which can be done by a doctor or a nurse or our social workers or chaplains. Pretty much all these people are, are experienced at doing it. And it's where we sit down with our patients and really have them start looking back at their lives. What were the major events in their lives? What were their major accomplishments? What were their major failures? Which relationships were key? What do they still or would they still like to accomplish in the time they have left? What will a good death look like? And what does a good life look like? So it's a series of these big questions, but it's really a chance for hospice patients to tell their story and to really break it apart into its most important pieces and evaluate it with an audience. And then we can ask those questions and help them come to terms with what they've gone through and what's happening in their life. And I think it's incredibly, again, important and valuable in trying to really narrow down what had real meaning and purpose for us and what are our regrets or our successes having to do with those. And again, every time I do this, I think, man, I wish all my personal finance people were doing this once a year. Right. Um, Even though they were nowhere near end of life, I just think it's so valuable to help us start looking at at their lives. Right. I mean, there's there's so many things that just thinking about that and as a reader, imagining that, hey, I'm going to die in the next month. When I look back, am I proud of what my life has in its history. And talk about in, in the introduction that we have the gift of mortality that gives us, you know, the strength and determination. And, and this is a quote out of the book. We should learn to live as if we are dying. Uh, and I know you mean that in a healthy way, right? Wake up, right? 
Yeah, there's this theory of memento mori, and don't ask me what culture it comes from, but I've heard it many times, this idea of keeping death present in our daily life. You know, on the outset, that sounds kind of horrible, but this idea is that we have to understand that we don't really control how many seconds, hours, days, or months we have, but we do have some bit of control over how we fill those time periods. And that's kind of you know, to keep us aware of this fact that we do exert some control over what happens to us on a day-to-day basis. Right. I I like to say where you spend your time shows what you value. You you really can't run from the fact that um, you spend your time doom scrolling on your phone or whatever. The time just vaporizes. And you look back at the end of the day and say, what did I do today? You don't get credit for that, right? I was going to say, one of my favorite exercise in this book, and I do it in a few different ways, is pretty much I try to have readers really think and codify about what has meaning and purpose to them and how they identify. And I really try to get them to narrow it down to five or six things. And then I ask them to go look at their day planner for the last two weeks. How many of the things that took up your moment to moment had anything to do with these five to 10 important things that you really think connect to your identity and purpose? And I think people are surprised at how much time they actually spend doing things that don't really relate or connect with those things that are important to them. Now, a caveat is that I don't mean then that you should scrap everything and spend every moment working on meaning and purpose. Sometimes we do have to work to make money and that money becomes a tool to give us other freedoms at other times in our life. I don't deny that, but I do want us to be more intentional because if you look at your year schedule... And 99.9% of that time is spent doing things that aren't meaningful to you and don't strengthen your identity or purpose, then we're probably not doing it right. Right. Absolutely. Another thought and a concept in the book is this hedonic treadmill and being an overdrive in this circle that just keeps going on and on and on. Why is it that it takes us so long to, to get out of that mindset? Uh, what, what holds us in that? Well, I think there are a few problems. Overdrive is this idea that we especially get this in the personal finance and financial independence world. We get so consumed by this idea of making money that we start hitting our goals. And instead of saying, okay, I now have enough money. I can go do what I want. We get more and more sucked into trying to make more and more money. So in a sense, we're in overdrive. The wheels are spinning, but we're not really going anywhere I think we start focusing on monetary goals for a few reasons. One, we forget the fact that money is a tool and not a goal. It is a tool, potential energy that allows us to use our time better and to accomplish things that have more to do with our purpose. When we start thinking of it as a goal instead of a tool, then we keep building on this idea that once I hit this one net worth goal, well, then I have to start looking up to the, uh, the next peak right. up. That, that's one issue. Because we define money as that goal instead of something more important. The second issue is we really have this idea of loss aversion. So Absolutely. Many of us say, once I hit this net worth, I'll be happy. Let's say it's a million dollars. So what happens? You get to a million dollars, and instead of feeling comfortable and you're like, I'm going to leave my job, I'm going to do things I like to do. Instead, you say, well, I have a million dollars today, but if the stock market goes down a little tomorrow, I won't have a million dollars anymore. Now that I've reached this peak, I'm scared as heck that I'm going to lose what I've gained. And in fact, studies show that people are actually doubly as anxious about losing what they have as they are about attaining what one of their goals is. 
So this loss aversion actually keeps us climbing higher and higher and trying to make more and more money because we're deathly afraid that we'll fall back down that monetary mountain. The point is, it all distracts us from doing the more important work. That's right. That's right. And I'll, I'll sit here and I will uh, admit right now, I did the calculations. I had the spreadsheets. I had a number. Uh, but the one more year thing hit me. And one more year became one more year. At that point, now I'm also a very conservative calculating kind of guy. And I was, in my mind, I rationalized it as, you know, I was building a little safety margin. Okay. I still had kind of an upper number, but when I was significantly above that number and I felt like, well, that's my cushion. If the market drops 30%, I can leave. I can decide to pursue whatever I want. Uh, but it was still a really tough decision uh, to do it and actually execute the plan that we had, you know, worked toward for so many years. The fact that you don't have a paycheck coming in anymore is a pretty major thought process to to change uh, directions in your mind. But you're absolutely right. It's uh, the money is not what it's about. Uh, the money is a tool, um, and that tool provides you the ability to decide what are you going to do with your life. You can do anything you want. And how come we always use this term safety margin having to do with money, but we don't use it having to do with life? Right. Like, yes, I want a safety margin with money, but how come we don't also say, yeah, but if I don't do some of this stuff now, I could die and never achieve anything that was important to me. We are reluctant to build that safety margin on the non-monetary side and so ready to do it on the monetary side. And it's just interesting why we do that. Right. No, it, it is. It's, 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 it's not fair and equitable, that's for sure. One of the things you mentioned uh, that the stories you tell uh, are, are you, you change the facts, obviously, for patient confidentiality reasons, but the stories you tell are, are just so crystal clear. Do you, do you keep a journal or when something happens and you say, you know, there's a lesson in this one, um, how, how did you reflect back on, on these, these patient history stories? Well, I've been writing about medicine for years. Like, as I said, yeah. back in 2005, I started a medical blog. And so on a regular basis throughout my career, whether privately or publicly, I've been writing about patient scenarios and what I think they mean. Um, so these stories are very ingrained in my mind and in my life because they become the backdrop of how I feel about my profession and in a lot of ways, how I feel about life. You know, I always kind of say we tell the stories about our life that magic make it magical or mystical. Some of those stories I tell myself about my life that make me feel good about my life are intertwined with these patient stories and, and what they taught me and how they gave me insight into life. I mean, what a privilege it has been to walk along with my patients all these years. And don't get me wrong, it, it was a responsibility. It was difficult. It was painful. It remunerated me very well, though. Yeah. Um, and I got this insight into the human condition that I could have never imagined getting any other way. So it's quite magical. And so these stories stick with me because they have very deep ingrained meaning into who I see myself as today. I think for a lot of us, we don't have that firsthand experience that can be so integral to driving our rationale today to make decisions to change on life experiences, career choices, you mentioned, um, you know, that safety margin, uh, even preparing for the eventuality 
that uh, of our passing and the and to mitigate the negative aspects it might have on the ones around us that we love. Because I know you say this in the book a few times, and and <laughs> you're gonna die. We are dying from the day we're born. Okay, that's that's a hundred percent true, and you and I are not going to be able to dispute that. But that reality should should speak to you and say, you don't wait until it's too late for so many of these things. Uh, and and later we'll talk about uh, the five regrets of the dying. And I'm going to admit I have some of those regrets, and I'm living still. Right, I can still do something about some of them, but some of them are way back in my past, and they're they're history. Yeah, it, it's amazing. Again. What a boon it is to start thinking about these things now. And I think, you know, Bronnie Ware gets a huge amount of credit for the five regrets of the dying. Right. Okay. So in chapter two, I was reading, I remembered one of your recent Earn and Invest uh, episodes where you had Jessica Lynn of the Fine Ears and Heidi Dusick, uh, the creator of the Ordinary Sherpa, with you. And you talked about some of these concepts, slow fi and coast fi and even YOLO. <laughs> which I used to hear my kids say when they were in middle school and high school and we were trying to come up with plans for a vacation, they would throw out that yellow phrase. And I'm like, what is YOLO? <laughs> Can you, do, you, do you advocate for one or the other of these terms uh, over e- each of them in the book? Or what's, what's your perspective there? So YOLO is the you only live once. So often we use that as a rallying cry to carpe diem, seize the day, Spend money now because who knows what's in the future. I think one of our biggest issues in life and certainly in personal finance is to try to get the mix of deferred gratification versus YOLO right. So all of us know that when you are young and you are making money, if you put money away for retirement, it will compound and serve you maybe for decades to come. That's deferred gratification, and that is good. But we also know that people like my father, who died at the age of 40, life is not guaranteed. And if you don't take some time right away to smell the flowers and spend your money, even when you're not financially independent, you may really miss out. And so this is the nuance that's very difficult for people to understand I always thought before being personal finance, writing about financial independence, being a podcaster, you know, go back a few years, I would have told you YOLO is the worst thing in the world. I would say you don't only live once, you live many times. Every part of life has its new stages and to spend too much money early leaves you bereft, maybe as a new parent or maybe as a new retiree and you don't want to do that. And then I started really contemplating my time with the dying and realizing they would have given up any amount of money to just have a few more experiences. I couldn't think of YOLO as a bad thing after that anymore because my perspective had been changed. So what I really try to do in this book, I think part of the big skill set I want to pass on to people is we need to be intentional about deferred gratification and YOLO, and we have to consciously decide how much of each of them we want to put into our budget And that has a lot to do with how we decide we want to get to financial independence, which is the second part of the book. But it also has to do with one fundamental question, which is, are you afraid of dying young and never enjoying your money? Or are you afraid of living long and running out of money? Depending on how you answer that question, it'll help you toggle that deferred gratification YOLO continuum so that you can hopefully enjoy your life today 
and tomorrow, regardless of how many tomorrows you have. Right, right. Just skipping ahead here, you tell a story about your sister and your sister uh, being stationed in Australia, I believe it is, right? And, and I, I like to I like to say, and I, I literally told someone something yesterday, I said, these windows of opportunity open and shut in our lives. And sometimes we don't even know it's a window. And we also don't know if it's ever going to open again. But these windows may open and shut and you don't even know it. And they've passed and they never come again, right? So, you know, this was one of your personal stories. Can, can you tell us a little bit about that? And now in hindsight, looking back to that point in time, it might have been a different thing for you, right? So when I was younger, I think it was in medical school, my sister married a gentleman who was a rabbi, and he got stationed in Australia for two years. And almost all my family took the time to visit them. And I remember I was too busy and worried I didn't have enough money and didn't want to miss out on medical school. I had every reason not to do that. And ultimately... If you think about the personal finance world, they would have said, well, you did save that money and you did probably invest it and it probably compounded. And that money is probably worth 10 or 20 times what it was back then. But the downside is that youthful adventure that I could have partaken of is gone forever. I will never be able to write myself back into my sister's life, nor my life, and recreate the time I could have spent with them when I was young and healthy and didn't have children and all these things that are now different. The point is, if you decide to never spend money until you're financially independent, you will miss out on some life. And how do we decide how much life we can or cannot miss out on? It's a guess. But most of the time, especially those who are like me, who are so money focused, most of the time we err on being way too miserly. Right. And then can never live back those moments of life we let pass. I, I agree completely. Uh, I, I don't know if you know what my concept of Phi Lighter is. It's financial independence, slightly early retirement, like lightly early. And, and that's kind of what I did. I was 55 when I made that decision. But, you know, your 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 story really comes to home because I'm thinking back and, and I've been somewhat overly conservative and there were opportunities maybe that we did not uh, partake on. And I look back and I think about my kids and are they going to think that they were deprived of anything when they were growing up? And I'm thinking, probably not. But one of the things we did a few years back was we took a trip to uh, London and Paris. And at this point, my kids are all adults or you know, in college or out of college. And the experience was a lot different than it would have been if we would have gone when they were in junior high would have seen the Eiffel Tower and, and the Tower of London, all these, all these things and memories. Uh, it was a very different trip taking them as adults because we would, we would go back to the Airbnb and the kids would go out for the night and we were done. My wife and I had supper and we went, we went to bed. It was a very different trip. Now, they, they may have made some memories as siblings that are worthwhile, but for me, there were some things like that that I wished I would have done earlier. And, and then in, then doing them, ultimately, it was not the same experience that I would had imagined. And I think people miss this idea. You know, if you figure out the right amount of YOLO fund, which means yeah. if you look at this is how much money I make and save each year, this is how much I want to go to financial independence, and then you create a YOLO fund, which you can toggle based 
on your own needs and wants, if you create a good YOLO fund, you're going to be enjoying life and the stresses of work just won't be bad because you're going to feel like you're living it up and enjoying yourself even while you're working. We both could consider that maybe you would reach financial independence later. Maybe you'd have to retire 10 years later, but you'd really be enjoying the money you are making now and using it so that life was very livable and bearable. It aligned more with your meaning and purpose today as opposed to waiting for some time in the future when you were retired and then could start searching out meaning and purpose. Yeah, using it today and building relationships and, and making them deeper. You know, one of the things that you talk, you might have to review us on this one, but the Maslow's hierarchy uh, of needs. You talk about a concept of flattening the hierarchy in the book. Can you kind of just review what, what the hierarchy is and what do you mean by flattening it? So Maslow's pyramid is very, very well known, and it's about the hierarchy of needs. And it suggests that the base of that pyramid starts with the basic things, food, shelter, heat, clothing, security. And as you build up higher and higher, you get closer to something called self-actualization, which you could also say is emotional well-being or life satisfaction, etc. The idea behind the hierarchy is it's a stepped approach. You start with the basics and walk your way up until you get to self-actualization. Upon thinking about my hospice patients, I started thinking that Indeed, maybe a stepped approach was wrong. The reason why is I had plenty of patients who had all sorts of economic fuel. I had a patient, for instance, who owned enough, had enough money to own a wing of a hospital and yet died miserable because he had none of those personal relationships and things that made life worth living. At the same time, I had a patient who economically lived a very sparse life, but he had married someone he deeply loved and he had family and he had connections. In some ways, he had reached the top of the pyramid, self-actualization, but didn't have the bottom covered at all because he didn't have the economic means to be comfortable when he died. The point of this is by saying it's a hierarchy, I think we do exactly the same thing as when we say that money is a goal instead of a tool. We tell ourselves that we can only start thinking about certain important things once we've reached something else. I found that not to be true. We can worry about our own security and economic needs at the same time we worry about self-actualization. So I don't think it should be a pyramid. I think it should be flattened and that we should start thinking about all of these things at the same time and working together at them with intention because they all interconnect. Right, right. You talk also about this other concept called the money mind meld, uh, and not Mr. Money Mustache, the money mind meld, okay, <laughs> M, M cubed, uh, and, and the concept of, of how that is uh, kind of viewed in, in, with respect to delayed gratification. Can you talk a little bit about what money mind meld is? Sure. The money mind meld is just this idea that we let money trick us into thinking accumulating that money is the most important and driving force in our life. And because we do that, it almost hypnotizes us away from thinking of anything else. And this is exactly the problem with the person who goes out and goes after hardcore financial independence, but can't answer the question why we get so confused by the money mind meld that we spend all our life energy making more and more money. And once we get there, Instead of being excited or thrilled, a lot of times we actually find this hole in our heart because we have no idea who we should be. We don't know what our purpose anymore is, and we feel a certain amount of vertigo 
that we've achieved this thing that had become our whole life and realize that it is a false god. It's a mirage and that there's nothing there behind it except a number on the bank account, which can change from day to day with the stock market. It's really disconcerting. Right. And yet I think a lot of us fall prey to this idea and forget that money, again, it's just a tool. We have to stop seeing this money mind meld or mirage of wealth as something any more than just that. Right, right. A lot of people, you know, they're pursuing this this magic number. And when they get to the magic number, they don't really have happiness. They just have a number. Yeah. It's an account uh, and, and some assets. Uh, so figuring out what it is you're going to do and realize that that number enables possibilities in life. One of the things that I think this is really a cornerstone in, in, in kind of your life uh, is the concept that you bring up with respect to subtraction. This is something you personally can tell a story about and what you did. But I think this, this might well be one of those um, secret sauce levers that people can pull, whether you're in the middle life or early life or later life in your career to really make a difference in, in the level of happiness. Uh, can you talk a little bit about subtraction and kind of your story there? Sure. So what happened with me is I had got to the point where I was burning out in medicine. I was trying my best to make extra money. I had owned real estate. I had medical side hustles. I had all this revenue and income coming in. And I was stressed out and busy and taking phone calls at three and four in the morning and sleeping six hours a night and working 70 hours a week. And I was just completely burned out. And then I realized I was financially independent when I got a book sent to me by Jim Dolly, the white coat investor. The book was the white coat investor. I read this book to review it for my medical blog and realized that I was financially independent. I could leave medicine. And instead of making me excited, I actually had a panic attack and really fell into a period of depression because I now could leave medicine. I could leave that identity and purpose that were no longer serving me, but I had no idea who I wanted to be or what my new identity looked like. So there was this period of years where I knew I wanted to leave medicine. I knew I had the fuel or economic ability to do it, but I wasn't sure what to do with my time or how to rebuild another identity. So instead of throwing the baby out with the bathwater and just leaving medicine completely, I took the opposite approach. I said, what is causing friction in my life? I now have some economic fuel. Let's look at my job. Instead of getting rid of it completely, let's start getting rid of the things that are causing friction and is anything left? So I had my own practice. It was stressing me out. I was getting phone calls to go visit people in their homes on the weekends and at night. So the first thing I did was get rid of that. But then I was working in nursing homes and I did that for a year or so, but I was getting tired of the late night phone calls and the extremely sick patients. So I got rid of that. What I was left with, which was something that I started as a side hustle, which was being a hospice medical director. You know, I loved doing that, but I didn't like being on call and I certainly didn't like working late at nights. So I decided to be just a contractor for that hospice company, work a few hours a week and only do the parts that I liked most. So effectively, what I'd done is I used the art of subtraction to get rid of everything I didn't like about my job and then leave the one thing that I still connected to, the thing that I would do even if I wasn't getting paid for. And that's how I knew that even though medicine as a whole didn't fit my purpose and identity anymore, being a hospice doctor did, and I could hold on to that one piece. In the meantime, that gave me all sorts of space now to 
decide what purpose and identity meant outside of medicine, which led me to things that I loved doing, but never had come to terms with the fact that I actually could identify with them. Things like writing and podcasting and public speaking. Now, if you're listening to the story, I could hear you saying, boy, wow, isn't that privileged? You had a lot of money. So that gave you the power to start subtracting things. But I'll tell you from my own family, as well as my patients, I've learned that even when you're not in as good of a circumstance, you have to start thinking about subtraction from the beginning. So for instance, my father-in-law, his family, including my wife, were in Iran during 1979. And my father-in-law worked for a company that was aligned with the Shah of Iran. And when the Ayatollah took over the government, they basically threw my father-in-law in jail because of his political connections through his job. Wow. He was let out of jail and realized, I need to leave Iran right away because this is a dangerous place for me. He was a CFO of a company and fairly wealthy and well-off, et cetera. They left almost everything, all their property, almost all their money to escape pretty much last minute to come to the U.S. where he didn't have a formal education, where he didn't have a job, and where he was also Middle Eastern at a time where the... Iran hostage event had just happened and people were not looking so nicely on Iranian men. So they had to really live hand to mouth. They had to learn how to subtract all the luxury out of their life. They had to learn how to stop eating out. They couldn't buy the finest clothes anymore. They had to be really frugal. And he had to make decisions in his work life. Eventually, he opened up a shoe store. He did that for a while. He saved just a little bit of money and he got held up at gunpoint twice within a six month period. He didn't have a lot. They were still fairly poor, but he had saved up enough money. He decided to use the art of subtraction, remove this dangerous job from his lifestyle, and put whatever little money he had down into a multifamily property, which eventually funded the next 20 years for them. Wow. So the art of subtraction is not something just for the wealthy. I've had patients. I have a patient who had emphysema who was a teacher. And he relied on that teacher's pension. He hadn't saved very much, but he was a math teacher. And as the way they were teaching math in the school system changed, he no longer connected or identified with this work that had been deeply gratifying for him. And yet he didn't have the economic fuel to leave that job, but he was able to transition from a math teacher to a career counselor for some of the high school students and then coach one of the high school teams and that created enough of a job where he could stop being a math teacher. He actually found more of a sense of purpose in doing those things, but was able to hold on to his pension, which ultimately funded his retirement before he got so sick from emphysema that he ended up on hospice. Right. So the art of subtraction can be used in the wealthy, but even if you're worried about how you're going to put dinner on the table tonight, I still think you have to start thinking about what are your options, what friction exists in your life. And can you switch positions within the same job? Can you switch jobs? Can you start a side hustle? Can you possibly spend a little bit less? These are all ways for you to decide how to subtract out of your life the things that don't have meaning and purpose, the things that maybe don't even create enough economic wealth for you, and replace them with other things that have more value. Right. The friction that prevents us from changing sometime and realizing uh, whether it's going from in the example of the shoe store to the apartment building, that was a change. That was a decision. The, you know, the, the balance changed and the weight was heavy enough to say, I am going to do something different and, and make that change. As you spoke about the, the Iranian uh, 
crisis that took place. I remember that very well because in, in 79 or 78 or whatever year it was, um, I had two juniors in high school uh, join my high school uh, from Iran. And and I befriended yeah, them and, yeah. and great guys. I, I wonder where they are today. But, you know, it was one of those things. You saw the headlines as an American watching TV and suddenly it became part of your everyday life. And, and you realize these are people that just walked away from everything. Yeah. And it you know it's it's the ultimate act of subtraction. They subtracted wealth and and security, financial security for life safety and then my in-laws kept on having to do that, you know. My father-in-law subtracted out a dangerous situation in the shoe store to become a landlord, but the downside of that was then he didn't have money for a handyman. I mean, he had to be at that place when a toilet broke at three in the morning. He was getting the phone right. call and he was getting out of bed and making the trip there and he was fixing it. There are trade-offs. And the key, again, is to be aware of those trade-offs. Right, right. You touched on something in, in your comments just a second ago. I want to reiterate. There's a quote in the book here. Life was not meant to be stress-free. Sometimes in order to pursue things we really want, we have to suffer for a time. I mean, I don't think you could say it any better than that, right? It's not always about life being easy. Yeah, I mean, you know, this whole idea of one of the paths to financial independence is front-loading the sacrifice. I talk about that when it comes to financial independence, but really that has to do with everything. I talk in the book about one of my patients who attempted to climb Mount Everest, and one of his sacrifices was he had to get up at 5 a.m. every morning and work out and exercise. And while he loved this idea of climbing Mount Everest, he didn't necessarily enjoy every one of those workouts in the mornings. He also had to give up some things economically. Like if he was going to take off the time from work and travel to Nepal, he probably couldn't eat out as much. Right. He probably couldn't do some of those other things he enjoyed. You know, life isn't easy per se, Again, it gets back to which struggles are worth it, and are we thinking about those trade-offs? Well, as you can tell from our conversation already, this is a very content-rich book because we haven't even started talking about Section 2. So I'm going to move us away and get us into the middle part of the book now because uh, you, you just kind of gave us a nice uh, entrance there. Part 2 of the book covers financial independence, and and uh, but I think there's an interesting nuance to this and, and your focus on it is you don't dwell on uh, to the nth degree some of the common concepts in financial independence, but you kick this section off with the parable of these three brothers, okay? I, I found myself trying to figure out which brother I am, and I can tell you which one I am mostly, and, and which one, I have three brothers, literally, so I, I put all three of them in categories, and let me just tell you, we got all three categories covered easily. <laughs> Do you find yourself with your siblings, you know, thinking about, thinking about who's like what? So the parable of the three brothers is an allegory, especially for the different ways of meeting financial independence. The first is the headstrong person who grinds it through the path really quickly and gets to the end of the path early and has lots of time to enjoy the freedom, but they're a little beat up and they're a little bit tired. That's like that traditional fire person who didn't love their job, worked really hard, accumulated money, let it compound. They skipped all the things their friends yeah, were doing. Yeah. You know. And were super savers and investors. The middle brother didn't love his path, just kind of like the first brother, but didn't have the stamina to just grind the way all through it. So they took many retirements, 
you know, maybe they took a trip off into the woods to enjoy themselves. This is a lot like the people who either do passive income, side hustles, or mini retirements, where they find ways to make enough income to support themselves, sometimes in ways that aren't as gratifying, but it, they don't need the same stamina that the eldest brother needs. And then last but not least, they're the youngest brothers who love the path, enjoy every moment of being out in nature, take their time, rest when they need to. When they get to the end of their path, it takes them forever compared to the first two brothers. But then they turn around and start walking back the way they came. This is really the passion play. People who are enamored with the idea of doing something like being an architect or an artist, and they find a job that they love to do, that they would do even if they weren't being paid for it, and that job produces enough money to cover their monthly needs. Of course, they're going to need some types of insurance, et cetera, to protect themselves. But generally, they're financially independent from the moment they start doing what gives them meaning and purpose all day as a job. I've thought about myself specifically, and actually I've come to the conclusion that probably when I started my career, I was like the youngest brother. It, I was passionate about becoming a doctor. I thought this was the end all and the be all. I didn't even think about the money, so to speak. However, once I started getting burned out in medicine, I started taking on side hustles and figuring out passive income. And in some ways, I started looking a little bit like the middle brother because I was getting fatigued, but I didn't feel like I was there yet. And last but not least, when I realized I was financially independent, I had grinded it out for enough years to save enough money and to invest it. In a lot of ways, what I think I ultimately became was the eldest brother. The point of this parable is actually not to say that you have to be one or the other. There are probably thousands of paths, but I like these three big ones because you can toggle back and forth at different times of your life. But why I like to define these brothers is it gives you a clear path to how you can both look at becoming financially independent, maybe even quickly, but also keep in mind meaning and purpose. So the first part of the book is all about deciding on purpose, identity, and connections and how that works in your life. The second part is saying, okay, now you know what's important to you. How do we build a financial framework around it? And I think these three paths are just really good archetypes for you to start building that financial future for yourself and yet stay true to what's really important to you. Right. I, I completely agree. And and it was kind of a relief to me to realize, you know, it's not about being the oldest brother, or the youngest brother, or the middle, I'm a middle child or the middle brother. You know, it was at different times in your life, it's appropriate to be a different one of these profiles and and realize that it's okay. It's okay if you're pushing the date out a little bit because you got a little YOLO going on and their windows are opening and shutting and you're experiencing life. You know, one of the things my dad and I talked about, I think it was one day we were on a, a boat fishing and we talked a little bit about, I, I like to say the Wizard of Oz scenario. You know, Dorothy is on this road on the Yellow Brick Road, right? Following the Yellow Brick Road and the Wizard of Oz. And what you come to realize is life happens on the Yellow Brick Road. It doesn't happen in Emerald City. Mm. It's on Yellow Brick Road. And at the end of the day, Dorothy's right back in Kansas, okay? But life <laughs> happened on the Yellow Brick Road. And that's where all the growth and the, the joy and all the opportunity happen. It's on that Yellow Brick Road. And so, you know, remembering that and knowing that it's not always this destination in your mind. And and like like you say, you know, if you if, if you will talk later about the uh, the Mr. Money Mustache graph that you have later in the book, you know, if you work and only save ten percent, you're going to work seventy till you're seventy years old, right? Before you can that destination and 
I like to use a term it's pretty common in the financial, you know, the CPA community is, you know, when you're looking at retirement plans, you have go-go years, you have slow-go years, and you have as many of your patients, they're in the no-go years, right? And so right now I'm burning go-go years. Every year that you're you're doing right now, you're spending a go-go year doing what I hope you love because you can, right? These are go-go years. And these go-go years while you can still physically, you have your health, you can maybe do things, not everything you could do when you were 25, but you can do a lot of things. I see that bicycle over your shoulder. You know, I'm sure you ride those hundred mile races and and <laughs> you can still do those things. Uh, I Believe it or not, I, I've done a, a century ride myself and I never believe this body could ride a hundred miles on a bicycle in one day. <laughs> I, I, I just, I was amazed at what the human body can do. And, but those opportunities to experience life have a value and knowing that sometimes it's okay to spend a little money and have an experience at the same time, keeping it in balance with these other things and realizing that ultimately, uh, you know, you can, you can reach your goal a lot of different ways. Some of them are a little quicker. Some of them are a little slower. Some of them are richer. Some of them are not. And, and so when you get to that destination, you want to be, uh, when you talked about earlier, the, the life, review, right? When you have your life review, you probably want to look back and think about these experiences that were rich in the memories, not necessarily in the cost, but in the memories. And the trip you never took to Australia, well, you didn't hang out on the beach with your sister, right? But at the end of the day, you appreciate the time you have with your family today, right? Okay, I, I want to I want to kind of move into something else that you talked about. You know, you talk about a couple of concepts here. One of them is a white swan event, and you personally experienced a white swan event with your father. Can you tell us a little bit about what is a white swan event, and and are these things common? And uh, you know, what what does that term mean? So. Most people are familiar with the term black swan events, right? So a black swan event is an unlikely event that can have drastic financial consequences. They're rare, but if they do happen, we could be in really big trouble. What I think is more important is white swan events. Now, white swan events are events that can have financial consequences, but they're much more common. Things like divorce or a healthcare um, crisis, or a sudden death in a family member, you know, a big part of risk mitigation, a big part of getting our financial house in order is to plan for financial independence and have the correct insurances and things and backups to mitigate these white swan events because they're likely to happen. And we love to talk about how we financially mitigate against those things. But again, I think we also have to mitigate against the idea that maybe we weren't pursuing our meaning and purpose. And then we're taken totally by surprise by one of these white swan events. And that's why it's important to do some of that harder work now. Right. And so literally the passing of your father was a white swan event. People die every day, but the, the, the percentages and likelihoods are pretty low, but it still happens, right? It, it happens every day, and, and your dad had provided life insurance. And, and something else, he encouraged your mom to think about her career and maybe pursue a different path. Uh, can you talk a little bit about how important, you know, because you, you mentioned putting your financial house in order. It's important to have your financial house in order. Those are firsthand things that happen to you. Yeah, they certainly are. And, you know, the 
the story of my father in some ways is very instructive. Unlike most people, my father thought he was going to die young. In fact, he told my mom this when they got married. And in retrospect, he lived life like he was going to die young. So a few things he did, remember that all-important question we talked about early, am I worried that I'm going to die young and not be able to use my wealth to enjoy myself, or or am I going to live long and run out of money? My dad was definitely on that first part. So instead of worrying about saving for retirement, something he didn't think he really was going to have, he tended to spend his money like he was going to die young. I mean, he had hobbies. He had things enjoyed. He traveled all around the world. He loved woodworking. He learned new languages. He was an amazing photographer. At one point, coming out of his fellowship, he was an oncologist or cancer doctor. He had the chance to take a really lucrative private practice job, but instead, he decided to stay with the university in a job that was nowhere near as taxing when it came to time commitment, but he got paid a lot less. And he made this decision, I believe, partially thinking, I don't have a long time. So for my dad, his YOLO fund was big, his deferred gratification fund was small, but then he added on to that risk mitigation. So he said, I may not live forever and I have a family, so I better have good life insurance. I better make sure that my wife and I have talked so that if God forbid something would happen to me, she would be able to make a living. So it's a real kind of good description of how using your best guess at some of these things allows you to risk mitigate, not only financially, but when it comes to figuring out your meaning and purpose and leaving a legacy. And so my dad was able to do both of those. And I think mostly because he was very thoughtful about it. Right. And and your mom made some good decisions too, right? She took the proceeds from that life insurance policy. And that's part of why you're a doctor today. Yeah. She invested that money and all, the money she invested eventually paid for all myself and my two brothers' college education. It paid for my medical school. My brother, Mark, went to got a master's and then went to chiropractic school. My brother, Andrew, got a PhD. It covered all of our costs, and there was even some money left over. Believe it or not, the life insurance policy was for $200,000 in like 1980. Wow. So it had compounded in the stock market hugely wow. by the time we eventually used it. Wow. Yeah, that was that was clearly taking care of your futures. Uh, on your dad's behalf to make some good decisions there and your mom actually to to carry out the plan. And uh, and, and I'm yeah. glad it worked out. That's because it could go a lot of different directions. And that was the best possible scenario, I think. One of the things that you talk about in the book, and I, I, I use this phrase a lot in my podcast, it's mind the gap. You know, when, when we were over in the UK on that trip to London, you're at the subway and what do you hear on the PA system? Mind the gap. They don't want you to fall in that crack between the train and the platform. But but mind the gap. There's a there's a simple equation here. Money earned minus money spent equals the savings gap. And a lot of people in the financial community are so wound up in the frugality aspect and just that middle part of the equation where how do I cut my expenses? And and realizing that this is a full equation. You can increase the money earned number too, and that has a huge impact on that savings gap at the at the end of the equation. Yeah, you can only squeeze so much water from a stone, right? <laughs> uh, frugality can only go so far. It is a great tool, right? right? 
It's a wonderful tool, but I think ultimately, and it's funny because mind the gap when it comes to London, you want that gap to be as small as possible. Well, in the financial world, we want a huge right, gap. Right, right. You know, we, we want, because that's the energy that fuels that financial independence lever, yes. right? And, uh, you yeah. know, I want to talk a little bit about the graphic I mentioned, uh, Pete Aidney, as many of us know, Mr. Money Mustache, uh, his his very famous blog. And he has a, a graphic that you put in the book. And I like this graphic. Uh, it's pretty simple. There's, there's two columns in the graphic. The left side is your savings rate and the right side is the number of years until retirement. Just let me paint a simple example for our listeners. If you're saving 10% of your salary or income a year, you'll have to work 51 years until you retire. But if you were able to save 25%, you'll only have to work 32 years. If you could push your savings up to 50%, you could retire in 17 years. I mean, these are hugely different numbers. Thinking a little bit about that person that's just saving 10%, if they can bump it up an additional 15% to 25%, they get almost 20 more years to enjoy the retirement, or let's just call it the after career. You know, it might be what you and I are doing more of today than, than we used to do, right? Uh, it's, it's, it's what we choose to do. That's a powerful chart, but there's also a lot more to it. And, I, and I, I'm going to ask you to kind of weave together, you know, that concept as well as the 4% rule, this perpetual money machine concept. Can you talk about kind of how all those dynamic things fit together? Well, first and foremost, I love this graph. And one of the reasons is nowhere does it talk about hard money income. Nowhere does it say if you make $100,000 a year, $200,000 a year. Right. Because the key is what really matters is not how much you make, it's your savings percentage. And this again gets back to minding the gap. You know, financial independence, especially if you're going to look at the traditional 4% rule, is a mathematical problem. And so one part of this book is explaining that mathematical problem and suggesting ways you can solve it, which is if you can save enough money and invest it appropriately, save a big enough percentage of your earnings every year you can retire in a set number of years and that money invested in the stock market compounding at average returns will form what's called a perpetual money machine. It will spit off enough cash that if you slowly liquidate it in order to use it on your needs, it will last at least 30 years, if not much longer. So it's a mathematical problem. So financial independence can be solved with basic math and it's just a matter of, again, being intentional about it. And so when you look at this savings percent versus working until retirement, again, this is going to sound like overkill, but I'm going to come back to it. If you're worried about dying young, you might want to save 10 or 15% knowing that retirement could be a long way off, but then use the other 50% or so left over after you pay for your basic needs to YOLO and enjoy yourself and love the life you're living today If if that fuel helps you do that. And that's fine. And if God forbid you don't die and live to a ripe old age, you might not retire until you're older, but you're going to be enjoying every day. On the other hand, if you think, boy, I'm going to live forever, let's save 50%. Let's make ourselves financially free quicker. Let's put in place that perpetual money machine. And then let's live out the rest of our lives doing exactly what we want to do 
you know, both of them are good options. And this just gives you the math. Financial independence is a math number, and we have to take our own wants and needs and fit them into those equations and figure out where we want to fall. And that's what I love about this. It gives us tons of options, and no two people may fall exactly in the same place. It's all trade-offs. I fall into that 35-year kind of range is what it ended Mm. up being. But but like you, years before that, when I did the calculation – and realized I was already there. Yeah. And my mindset wasn't ready to be there, but I was there. And it's it's a it's a product of how you plan way early on. Mm-hmm. You know, if you have these habits early in your life, you don't nearly uh have the problem of how do I save 15% if you've already been saving 25, right? Mm-hmm. I want to go ahead and move into the last section of the book before we use up all our time here today because this is really an important part of the book uh, is the one thing that dying wish they had more of is time. One of the things we've talked about Bronnie Ware's top five regrets. I'm going to ask you to go ahead and read these top five regrets of the people that were dying. So this comes from Bronnie Ware's famous book, The Top Regrets of the Dying. And there are five. Number one is, I wish I had the courage to live a life true to myself, not the life others expected of me. Two is, I wish I hadn't worked so hard. Three is, I wish I had the courage to express my feelings. Four is, I wish I had stayed in touch with my friends. And five is, I wish that I let myself be happier. I I just can't hear that list without saying, well, I got to work on this number uh, number one. I got to work on uh, number two. You know, these these are things that cause you to think a little bit. And I'm I'm certainly not still working hard at the office. I can tell you what they say about your stress level changing. <laughs> it's real. Absolutely. Uh and and you have some stuff early in the book about how much people um spend on nights and weekends engaged in their work. And I think all of that kind of stuff aggregates uh to make you not as a, not as happy or uh not as present even in, in your family. Yeah. I mean, no one on their deathbed says, I wished I worked more nights and weekends. No one, hands down. Most people, I've almost never heard someone complain about their net worth when they were dying. I never heard them say, man, I only made it to 500,000. I really wanted to make it to a million. It just isn't what's on your mind when the cards are down. Bronnie Ware's five regrets are on what's on your mind when the cards are down. And that's what I think is so valuable about it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. One of the things I was thinking about, our CEO used to give a speech, and I heard this firsthand several times, but uh, he would give a speech to the sales team or whatever meeting we were we were in. And one of the things he he would always close out with is that Sunday night gut check when you're getting ready for Monday morning, if your stomach's in knots and you've got a lot of anxiety and um, you're really dreading it and have a lot of consternation over the, the next day at work, it might be a better idea to find somewhere else to work, he said. You know, it's better for you and it's better for me because, frankly, we want you to be happy here. We want you to feel proud of your job. And, and if you're not getting that out of it, then maybe you ought to be somewhere else. And I thought that was pretty bold of him. But you know, he made that statement uh, to senior executives in many speeches. And and uh, that's that's the reality that I think that we don't realize, you know what, I don't have to do something that doesn't make me happy. Yeah, life is too short to despise your job. So that's one of the things I suggest in the book. If you're at this place where you despise work, 
something needs to change immediately. I mean, it's one thing to say, eh, I'm annoyed by work or I don't love it. But if you despise yeah. it, uh, it's hard to say I'm going to spend the rest of my life doing things I don't love or specifically despise. Right, right. Well, fortunately, as in your own career, career challenges don't always lead to you jumping ship. A lot of times it will. But in some cases, you can craft that uh, that job or that that organization you're in to to really concentrate on the fulfillment aspects of your job and, and maybe, you know, uh, leverage your strengths more and things that you enjoy versus the parts that you don't. And if you can do that in an organization, you still keep all your goodwill. You've got history in an organization and uh, and an opportunity to, to bring that forward and, and maybe a more focused role that brings you the joy. Well, that that's awesome. Okay, I think with one one last wrap-up comment, and we'll we'll start getting to the wind down here. No personal finance book is complete without some comments about investing. But I think what you talk about in chapter eight is not what people are thinking about. They're not talking, we're not talking about just investing in stock and bonds and things like that. Can you talk a little bit about the things that you're talking about investing in? Because I think these types of investments are every bit as important as the ones that are obvious to us. Well, you know, as I said before, some of the backbone of this book started as a blog post about investing advice from a hospice doctor. And the punchline of that blog post is almost none of it was about how do we use or utilize our money. And the reason why is there are many ways to invest in life that have nothing to do with the stock market and they have nothing to do with index funds and they have everything to do with how you spend your time and energy. And so a lot of that chapter is about the things we should and shouldn't invest in, things like the power of reconciliation. Maybe we should be investing more time in setting right those relationships that have been marred or harmed in our life because they're important to us. The courage to fail. How often have we not done something because we are afraid we are going to fail instead of jumping in and saying, if I fail, I fail, but at least I tried there are others living in the moment. We sometimes invest or chase false gods that aren't important to us. Um, all of this is the backbone of that chapter. And then we discuss a little bit about some things we should definitely be investing in, like education, like our children and relationships, like forgiving ourselves, which I think is a big part of coming to terms with your life. So I wanted to kind of turn the tables and say that there are investments we make in the stock market and in ways to make money, but we make need to make sure actually that instead of that being our goal of what to do with our money, we spend a lot more time figuring out how we invest in our lives. And that's a key takeaway from that last section of the book. Absolutely. There's so many more things we can do that bring us fulfillment than just investing our money. And, and these things really affect our perspective. Well, ultimately, I, I just want to say your book really, really helps uh, helps us gain a clearer understanding, whether it be of our unique purpose, our identity, our connections, um, but more than anything else, that we have time now to act and to make changes. You know, we don't have to wait till we're in hospice care to reflect back and 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 say, "I wished I would have." Um, all all those opportunities, you know, we still have time to make a difference. And I was really invigorated. You know, I'm going to work harder to refine the things that I need to to focus on. And 
it's it's not always easy, but you mentioned, I think, having harder conversations or, uh, Dad, we need to talk. I can't remember what I saw in the book, but I thought about when I visit mom and dad, my, my parents are in their mid-80s as well as my wife's parents, and I I talked to them and I, and I talked to them about how they want their end of life to go. And, and while they're still conversive and thinking a little bit and, you know, and because you see, you know, people over time decline in their comprehension and everything else. It's like, we need to have these conversations because I want to know, I want to know. And if, if my brothers and I can really make that future, what they want it to be, then, then we need to know what it is. I've been so bold as to talk to my dad about let's write an obituary one day, yeah, you know, yeah. because there are things you know that I don't know. We heard stories, but there's never been anyone that stitched it all together. Uh, and so, you know, those are kind of crazy conversations to have, but they're, I think, important. Yeah, I don't think they're crazy at all. I think this is actually how we plan for a better future, but also understand our now. Because when you start talking to people about what they want their funeral to look like, what they want their obituary to look like, and how they want to physically die, it actually tells you a heck of a lot about what's going through their mind today, what's important for them, what isn't important for them. How can we meet some of those plain goals now, even before they're dying, and incorporate that into their life as well as their death? Right. Well, I, I will continue to have those conversations because your book does encourage me to to kind of work through all those things. And uh, and they're, they're not always easy, but I think they're important. And um, one of the things I will tell you I've done from time to time on the podcast is I try to talk to somebody else that knows you uh, and and knows a little bit more about my guests than I might know by by all means. Um, and I reached out to Joe Salcihi, which uh, you know very well, right? <laughs> I do. I was wondering why he knew we were having this conversation today. I, I like to just kind of gain some insight. And some of the things that uh, that he gave me, you know, were very predictable. And and some of the things weren't so predictable, you know. And I thought. Uh, let me just share a little bit about that. And, uh, you know, the the first part of his comments, like I said, were just what I expected. He's known as a thinker and a deep guy who likes to have conversations about real stuff, not small talk about the weather. <laughs> and I, I think anybody that listens to your podcast uh, uh, can probably make that same statement. And, and you know, I, I guess that's kind of what I would felt you'd be like. But then he goes on to say... <laughs> But he helps us write the write the comedy for the Stacking Benjamins show. We have two writing rooms uh, meetings a week. The first one we do the creative work and we come up with the ideas that we'll use, you know, on the show. He says, he says Jordan's hilarious. He often has the seeds of the ideas that actually make it into the podcast. And I thought that was interesting. I was like, I'm not seeing this guy as a funny guy. Okay, I'm just. I, I know he's got it in him, but I just don't see it. Believe it or not, um, humor is really important to me. And th those writing meetings are fantastic because you have the complete freedom to be horrible, make bad jokes, and have everyone be like, no, that's not even funny. But then those ideas actually turn into the seeds of really funny things. One of the ways I knew that I had a problem with medicine as a profession is one of the things my wife noticed, especially in retrospect, is she said, you lost your humor for a number of years there. And it was because I just felt so overwhelmed with practicing medicine when I finally was able to pull myself out of it. 
I became more like the guy who I was going into medical school, much more funny, much more ready to laugh, um, much more forgiving um, of people in general. And so, yes, part of this wonderful post, you know, if you want to call it retirement, or at least me leaving this job that wasn't fulfilling my sense of purpose, is to do things I would never have considered doing before, like being on the writing team and and joking and laughing and trying to find out what's funny uh, with these everyday issues we tackle. Throw it against the wall and see if it sticks. You know, no idea assassins, I, I guess, is the, the key thing there. Everybody lets, lets you say what you want to say, right? Well, then, then he says the second session, you clean things up at a, with a table read. He says, you're a really great editor at getting to the heart of the joke. And I'm thinking that might be some of your medical training because, you know, it's so much about the facts. What does the data say? What does the test say? Here are the three approach options. Here's the profile of this patient. This is the best one. Uh, Strip out the stuff that doesn't matter. You know, I love writing. And part of the reason is I love words. And there is a lyricality to writing for me. I'm very much into music. I grew up with rap music, right? I really like kind of the lyricality and the beat and the timing. And so I'm a big fan of getting rid of everything unnecessary in written script. And because I think there is a beat and a timing of it. And so that's one of my favorite things to do, actually, is to really work on that rhythm, especially when it comes to comedy and humor, because it's a very difficult rhythm and every word means something. The the last thing that he did bring up, and I think this came came across in some of our discussions, is that your attentiveness to being a good dad is really important to you. And and that's something that outwardly he sees. And I think, you know, that that's genuine, that's authentic. And and I really feel like that doesn't surprise me one bit about you. You know, the gift, the gift of all this, of of thinking so deeply about life is you start thinking what truly has meaning. And it sounds like a cliche, right? Being a good dad truly has meaning. But you know, our time with our children and our spouses and our family, it's finite and measurable. And I just, after dealing with all this, came to the conclusion that I need to really be very present. And I need to stop myself, right? You know, you're with your family and everyone's having fun and your brain is off thinking about something else. You have to like reel yourself back in and say, no, be in this moment because this moment will be gone at some point. That's right. That's right. As as children grow up and, and you'll soon have one leaving the house yourself, I'm sure you've read the statistics. You know, by the time your child is 19, you've already spent 90% of the time that you will with them in your life. Yeah, and and yeah. so those years, those years while they're still around the house really become so important. And um, my, my daughter was getting a cup of coffee and I, I was talking to her earlier this, this morning and I thought about those times that we spent just one-on-one, each of the kids doing different things, but whether it was camping or in, in my daughter's case, camping or going to Starbucks when she was in middle school and letting her just tell me about things, mm-hmm. you know, where you just sit down across from someone and you let them just go and, and take it in and be part mm-hmm. of their lives. It's, it's something that it doesn't have to cost a lot of money, but that time is, is invaluable. Absolutely. Well, I, I can't express enough how much I've enjoyed this discussion. Uh, in your book, I'm excited for you. I'm excited for the community. I think that there's truly a different perspective in this book. And uh, and that's why I really enjoyed it. Uh, I, I think that it 
forces you to do a little bit more on deep thinking about your life and, and about not only yourself, but the people you influence in your life, whether that be your children or your parents or your friends, thinking about, you know, how do I kind of pass this along to the next generation and, and make sure they know how important certain things are in the scheme of things looking back. Because I know that people our age, you can look back on something you really fretted over and worried about and struggled with, and then later how in- insignificant ultimately that issue was. Well, I really thank you for having me. You know, I wanted to contribute something very different to this personal finance world. I wanted to put out some ideas there that maybe people had never heard. And I wanted to give them the philosophical background and framework for what I think we're all doing in the personal finance world and financially. And uh, I hope if people can draw that from this book, then I've kind of delivered on that hope. So when will this book be out? You know, when can listeners find the book and where can they get it? What's best? So Taking Stock, A Hospice Doctor's Advice on Financial Independence, Building Wealth, and Living a Regret-Free Life is available through Ulysses Press on August 2nd. And so you can find it anywhere where you can find books, especially online, right? So anywhere on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Target, Books A Million, etc. If you have any questions, you can always go to jordangrummet.com. That's J-O-R-D-A-N-G-R-U-M-E-T.com. You can find out everything taking stock there, as well as there are links to my medical blog, my financial blog, as well as the Earn and Invest podcast. It's probably the easiest way to find out anything you need to know about what's going on with me. I'm announcing pre-sales July 1st, so if people want to buy it early, they can pre-order it through Amazon then. And uh, keep your eyes open for it. I'm excited to get it out there in the world. Excellent. Excellent. Well, we'll be sure and put links in the show notes to all of the things you just mentioned. If there's anything else we can do to help our listeners find this book or find your content, uh, we'll be glad to do that because uh, I think there's some great information there for all of us. Uh, with that, I'll say, this is Lambo the Firelighter. We are signing off with Doc G and the new book, Taking Stock. Nothing's far away. Nothing's far away. Jordan, just a couple things. I don't often read books that force me to look at a dictionary. <laughs> <laughs> and you actually used a term in the podcast that I actually had to look up, you know, in your conversation. And I'm wondering if that's because of your medical background or, or what, but there were more than a few words in this book that I actually had to look up. <laughs> I have to say, I read voraciously and I love language. And I just think think sometimes, and again, this gets into this idea of the lyricality of writing and reading. I think there's some words that fit appropriately and create the right rhythm when you're reading in the right place. Uh, So admittedly, sometimes I use words that are not the first at the top of people's minds, but I think it does say a lot about who I am. It's kind of, it's how the way I talk, if you 
see me in public, although I feel very comfortable not speaking on that level. If I am especially having an intellectual conversation, I like to. Um, And I just think that, again, there's a a poeticism or a lyricism to it that that I really enjoy. And that's part of my writing style. Right. I mean, there there were some that I just kind of did a double take on, like, I know what a quail is. But I didn't know it could be a verb. Yeah, to quail. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. Quail. <laughs> you know, I mean, maybe I'm just not as well read. That's for sure, too, because I'm, I'm sure I'm way behind you on that one. Imbued. Uh, here's one where you just stick two words together. Medical legal. Okay, I'm like, really? A comp? Yes. Did you make a compound word up? Yeah, I made no, it. No, it's I did. legit. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Medical legal. Yeah. Uh, anathema. Is that how you say it? Anath- anathema. <laughs> Yeah. There you go. Yeah. I'm a little naive there. Uh, but, you know, there were a lot of words that, that I oh, I shouldn't say a lot. That's pretty much all of them. Yeah, hopefully um, it doesn't take away from the joy of reading it. But again, to me, it's it's part of the it's part of the colorfulness of expression. Right, right. No, you're the word. When you go look up a word like that, you realize why it was used. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it was totally appropriate. Yeah. But yeah, as I say, every day we wake up. We can learn something, okay? Mm-hmm. Believe it or not, doesn't matter how old you are, you can learn something every day. And uh, and so learning a few new words was no big deal for me. I'm all over that stuff. So, uh, But again, I thank you for this time. Uh, I know you're a very busy guy, uh, and I'm sure your weeks are filled. Uh, hopefully you'll, you'll enjoy your summer. You got a vacation lined up. You're ready to relax. I don't think there's going to be much relaxing this summer because the book comes out August 2nd. So I've got some events and some speaking to do. And so I probably will be running around like a madman this summer. Um, But that's expected. And that's part of the joy of this kind of project. Excellent. Well, I hope that the launch goes uh, and, and becomes everything you expect it to be in your mind. I'm sure you've had many of those 4:45 mornings where you wake up thinking about it, and uh, and you and you. It's hard to not just be enveloped in those kind of projects when you're in the middle of a big one. But uh, I, I absolutely think it'll go great, and I'm looking forward to seeing your success, and uh, and I'm thrilled to see you put that book out there for for the community. So, with that, I'll say good luck, and thank you. The Phylighter podcast is for education and entertainment purposes only. Please contact your financial expert or attorneys for any accounting, finance, legal, or tax advice. Episode 15 was recorded June 16th, 2022.